Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hey, y'all, it's Justin Richmond. We have a really special episode for you today. When Rick Rubin and I first talked about making Broken Record, we had a short list of absolute dream guests for the podcast. Neil Young was at the top of that list. We tried by various means over the years to make it happen. Neil had even been around the studio while we were taping episodes with other guests, but we just couldn't make it work. So when Neil's new record was announced and we were told he wanted to speak with Rick about it, we were beyond ecstatic. Neil's one of very few popular artists who seems to be singularly focused on creating. Wherever the muse goes, he goes. As a teenager, it led him to the folk clubs of Canada, where he first met Joni Mitchell. In the late 60s, it led him to Los Angeles, we started Buffalo Springfield with Stephen Stills. Later, it led him to a long solo career with intermittent stints with Crosby, Stills, and Nash and other groups he's put together over the years. It's also led him at various points to spurn fans, journalists, executives, labels, collaborators, or anyone who gets in the way of his vision. Neil's an iconoclast, a renegade, someone who makes music vibrant and exciting. And we're lucky to still have him around, foraging relentlessly ahead, as vital as ever. Depending on how you count, Neil's newest release is his 50th solo album. Not counting the dozens of other archival and miscellaneous releases from decades past, or the dozen or so archive releases to come in the new year. The newest one was recorded in a barn up in the mountains of Colorado, with his on and off again band since 1968, Crazy Horse. The album's called Barn. Let's listen to a bit of a song from it called human race.
Today's episode, Rick and Neil talk about his new album, all of the archival projects he plans on releasing in the coming year, the time they spent working together on some abandoned songs in 1997 that may soon see the light of day, Neil's time in a Rick James-fronted band that was signed to Motown, driving to LA from Canada in a hearse. They talked for so long, we decided to make this the first of two episodes with Neil Young. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's part one of Rick Rubin's conversation with Neil Young. Hey. What's happening, Maine? How's it going? Pretty good. How you feeling? Feeling good. Good to see you. Great to see you. Oh, my God. So how have you been? I've been great. I haven't seen you in a minute. Yeah. It's been maybe a minute and a half. (laughs) Jeez. All good? Everything well? You're feeling good? I feel healthy. Yeah, I feel good. Great. You're looking great, man. Thank you, sir. Trying my best. Yeah. So tell me, first of all, where's the barn? What part of the world is the barn in? It's in Colorado. Beautiful. Yeah. The filming of the sessions is beautiful and shed a lot of light on the music. The album's beautiful, but seeing the images... And seeing the tranquility of the nature while listening to the music really is a moving experience. Yeah, uh, Daryl did a great job. It is quite interesting to watch. It's stop action. Every seven seconds, it takes a picture. And so the music has this timeless aura to it uh, because things are happening out of time. So when you're looking at it, it doesn't distract you from the music. The music stays with you while it's happening, which is really, you know, very rare. Most videos are a distraction in my view. You know, they don't help you get way into the music. Yeah. They support the music, but they don't help the music. It's interesting. When when you listen to music, do you close your eyes or do you keep your eyes open when you're listening? You know, I, I'm really not sure. When I'm listening to music, I'm, I'm gone. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing. If I'm really into the music, yeah, it just takes me away, transports me. That's, that's actually one of the things I wanted to talk about is I've seen you play a lot of times. I've seen a lot, a lot, a lot of times. And I can't think of a case where it didn't feel like you were being transported by the music always. It was always you were gone in it. Are there ever bad shows? Can you ever not get into that place? Sometimes, but rarely. I, I, I'll take any kind of abusive circumstance to the music and try to use it. You know, whatever it is, I try try to turn it around and throw it back at the music. Yeah, it's like I try to make the best of it, and I use it. A lot of times things go wrong in life, as we all know, and you don't know what the hell's going on. Why did that happen? I try to take that anger or sadness and put it into music, and the same thing happens in real time. If I'm playing and there's a lot of distractions or something, if there's severe distractions, I'll freak out. But if they're not, uh, I will use it in the music. Might the distractions actually make it better, based on what you're saying? In some cases, they might, yeah. For me, I don't know about other musicians. <laughs> <laughs> only asking for you. Yeah, I know. I, thank God. Yeah, it's only everything we're going to talk about is very personal. It's just like, how does it hit you? <laughs> <laughs> 
What was it like being back in the room with with the horse? <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. It's always great to be in the room with the horse. And now that we have Nils and Poncho's retired, you know, Poncho got some arthritis and the hand injury at the same time. So that he, he did do another tour after that, but he wasn't enjoying it as much because it really hurt. Uh, so he decided to give it a rest. Nils was in early too, though, wasn't he? Yeah, he was with uh, he was with us for uh, after the Gold Rush. Tonight's the night. Trans. So it, during my first ten years, he was around a lot. Do you remember the very first time you jammed with Crazy Horse? Yeah, it was in my living room. You know, I, I hung out with the Rockets a lot at their house in Laurel Canyon, which is right on Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Someday, if we're in Laurel Canyon together, I will show you the house. It's still there. Great. One of those funky wooden houses. Yeah. Three or four stories tall with a garage under it that opens right onto Laurel Canyon on a corner. <laughs> it's dangerous. Very dangerous. Uh, but we used to get high there and party and have a great time playing music and listening to music and talking. It was, uh, you know, Annie Whitten and Robin Lane and Billy and Ralph and, and uh, George Witzel and Bobby Notkoff from the Rockets. And I just liked it. They were, uh, they, I think I met them through Buffalo Springfield somehow at some gig, uh, at maybe the Whiskey of Go-Go. And I think that's where I met them. And then I, they asked me to come over and hang out. We just started talking. And so we talked and we hung out and listened to music. Had a great time just hanging out. It was a good place to go. I, I went there more than anywhere else because I had a good time. And uh, we would jam and play. It was always, always felt good to me. Because they weren't really, you know, that accomplished. Although Notkoff on the violin was amazing. And George Witzel was a great musician. Still is, I believe. Then there was Billy and Ralph. And uh, Robin was Danny's girlfriend. And Danny was great. They're just nice people. Just a good group of people. I enjoyed being with them. And from the first time you played, did it feel good? It always felt good playing with the Rockets. Then, but there were a lot of rockets, so it wasn't really good for making a record for me. So that's when I decided maybe I could just borrow a few people from the rockets and make a record. And when that happened, I asked them to come up to my house. My house was in Topanga Canyon and uh, high up, way up on one of those roads and overlooking the shopping center and the corners and everything. And we were up there playing in my living room. And that was great. We, we, we sounded great right away, instantaneous. By playing with different people, how does it affect you, the way you play, or what happens? Well, there's nothing like Crazy Horse. And I love, always love playing with Stills. It's the same way. Stills is like a real musician. He's very open and shares everything and loves to play. And But the, uh, the horse... There's like a group that's like that. So, you know, the more I played with the horse and then we start jamming and just playing and it's just always was easy. As long as the chords were right, it was good. <laughs> nothing complex because that wasn't, that's not what the horse does. The horse does a groove. And uh, if, if it's simple enough, we can all get into and get lost in it and not worry about remembering anything and, or an arrangement. Uh, the window into the instrumental has got to be the window into the verse. So we can play for as long as we want, and then we're in the verse whenever we want to go. 
And that's how we do it. There's really no, there's no rules about it. When you write the songs, do you think of a structure or does it happen more? You're looking at the lyrics on the page and you're feeling the jam and the shape of it evolves naturally. The best ones just naturally evolve. The best ones happen kind of by mistake, right? If you can say that. They happen so naturally, you don't even know how it happened. It's the real deal. And um, we have it and we respect it and we love it. We honor it. We're glad to be together all the time we're together. So we appreciate the whole thing. It's like a gift. Beautiful. There's one. There's one on the new album. I don't know. I don't know titles. I don't know titles on anything. I don't know titles on any songs I work on either. But um, <laughs> you, you sing about stars in the sky. Oh yeah, let's welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's not the same. <laughs> don't you love all those commercials? Welcome back, Applebee's. What? <laughs> Applebee's. Welcome back. Are you kidding? I'm not going in there. <laughs> I mean, I got nothing against Applebee's. Good luck to Applebee's. And I'm sorry, CEO, whoever you are. But so many people started saying, welcome back. Uh, I was thinking myself, I, I don't think we're any farther away from this pandemic than we were the first day we discovered it. Yeah. I think we've made much progress. So I feel that uh, we're still there. So I don't go out and play. I hardly go anywhere. I just stay at home because. Lucky for me, I've got a lot to do. Yeah, same here. We don't leave the house. No, because there's a lot to do right here. Look at all the stuff you've got in your vault. I mean, you've got so much stuff that you wish that you'd finished or you wish that somebody else had come along and helped you finish it or whatever happened. What happened to that? That was great. How come we stopped? I, I understand all of that. Time is weird because you keep going. And that's the way I... Uh, that's the way I, I've, I've lived my musical life. I just go from one thing to another. And coincidentally, I just was visiting one of our sessions, uh, one of our few sessions. We were actually in a studio that we were playing. Yeah. And some of that stuff, and there's some radical stuff in there. There's one thing called hard luck stories that uh, you should give a listen to sometime just to refresh your memory. I haven't heard anything since that day. So I, I've. No. It's ridiculous. It is? <laughs> yes. And that's not the one that's the best one. Really? The other two are better. <laughs> but Hard Luck Stories is ridiculous. Wow. It's back in, uh, I think, somewhere in the previous decade. Yeah. I did a bunch of demos. It's when I got the Sinclair and the Lindrum and whenever all that started. Yep. The Simmons drums, the sync system with the Sinclair and all this stuff. I got all that stuff. And I started laying down tracks and doing all kinds of stuff by myself at my ranch. And then I did a bunch of songs like that and recorded them and mixed them. And But there's no real guitar playing or anything on them. And uh, they're all on multi-tracks. And that's what we had when we went in the studio together. We had, th we had one of those that I brought in and I said, let's just try to play this song or whatever. And I and I played it and it's and I was singing. I had already sung on it and everything. So I, I must have said, or somebody must have said, why don't we just play with that? Which is weird. Because Crazy Horse playing with a bunch of computers is weird. Wow. I don't remember this at all. I mean, I remember yeah. I remember being in the room with Crazy Horse. I remember the session, but I don't remember that. That's wild. Yeah, we only did one like that. Yeah. Hard luck stories. The other two are just uh live tracks of Modern World and Horseshoe Man. 
or the two songs. Yeah, I remember there was a good version of Horseshoe Man. As I think back, yeah, it's a beauty thing. It's a, it's great. I remember it being really in the moment. I, I remember it. I remember that. See, that was an early master. That was probably, uh, if I remember, it might have been the original performance yeah. in the studio, as was mo uh, Modern World and Hard Luck Stories. It was the first time, you know, if, you, if you say, okay, the one I did with the computers and all the you know, synthesizers and machines, the one I did with the machines was the original one where I was writing it and I laid it all down. But the only other time I played it was when we put that on and uh, we played with it. And it is so ridiculous. I can't, I tell I you can't wait the, to hear it. It's the war of Crazy Horse against the, the machine. Versus the machines. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it is, it's really good. Who wins the battle? But I think the horse won. Of course. Very, they were very thankful <laughs> for the machines. The machines gave them some idea what they were doing. And it was easy to do. Never it. count the horse out. No, no, no. <laughs> The horse just sniffed the machines a couple of times. He said, I can do this. And uh, turned its back on the machines and kicked them a couple of times. Don't bet against the horse. <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. We, we had a great time. I remember we booked a session, and then you called me, and you told me that you cut off a piece of your finger. Do you remember this? Yeah. That's what happened after that session. No before the session and you called and told me about it. And I said, so we'll cancel it. You said, I can't play guitar. So I said, should we cancel the session? And you said, no, I have an idea. I'm going to play harmonica through my guitar rig. Right. We did. And it said, okay. And that's, so that, that's, <laughs> that was what happened. That is. So that's why I'm not playing guitar uh, on some of it. The only thing I played on hard luck stories, I believe the only thing I played is one chord. Yeah. And I kept playing with one chord and just slamming yeah. it. And uh, the rest of it, Poncho played his guitar. Yeah. Brilliant enough played and everything was good. But I remember you were able to play piano because you were playing piano the whole the whole. Oh, day. yeah. Yeah, I played piano on Horseshoe Man. And I didn't play anything on, on Modern World because uh, I played harmonica. Yeah. We just kept going. We continued. We, we made good records. Yeah, I remember you had a marimba brought down, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I might have. I think there may be marimba in there somewhere. Because I, I remember I'd never seen a marimba in person before. So it was exciting. <laughs> oh, that was the big thing, like a xylophone. Right? It was like a xylophone, but made out of wood and really big. Made out of wood. Beautiful. And it had some machine in it that like um, spun, almost like a yep. Leslie. Yeah, that was used on... Uh... I believe we used that on Horseshoe. Yeah, cool stuff. We'll be right back with more from Neil Young after a quick break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with Rick Rubin and Neil Young. You mentioned Stills. Do you remember the first time ever playing with Stills? I played with him in Fort William, Ontario in like 1961 before I even went back, before I even went down to L.A. Wow. And I went down to L.A. looking for him, couldn't find him. And I was driving down the street and we were thinking of going to San Francisco, Bruce Palmer and I, you know, just driving down uh, the street in our hearse uh, with all of our stuff. And we thought, maybe we go to San Francisco, we'll find some music there. So it was Sunset Boulevard uh, around, uh, right in between uh, the Screen Actors Guild and the old Greenblatt's. I know exactly where that is. Really close to Laurel Canyon. Yeah, really close to Laurel Canyon. I looked out and there and i heard just somebody calling neil neil and i looked out the window and it's stills he's in a car going the other way but the traffic's kind of going really slow so i pulled over and they came and stills was with puree and they've been trying to get it going and so that's how the springfield started so the the initial playing with stills in ontario must have been good for you to want to come down to California to find them. Oh, yeah. No, that was great. We played a lot of stuff, and it always felt good. And uh, he was just really getting into electric guitar for the first time. He had had an acoustic guitar and had been a folky. But he, uh, he had gotten an electric guitar, and uh, he liked playing it. And he was in a band called uh, The Company. And uh, what he played in The Company was his, his electric guitar sometimes. And the company was you know, kind of a folk 
Christian minstrels kind of thing, only six people or something. It's pretty cool. Like a vocal-based group? Yeah, but they had instruments and they played songs. They had a groove going. Yeah. But we were, at the time, it was me and the Squires. It was me and a bass player and drummer. And we were just rock and roll, crazy rock and roll. I was doing stuff uh, based on uh, Jim Rose. Jim Rose had Hey Joe. Yeah. And he also had great versions of, uh, I think it was Oh Susanna. Or maybe it was, anyway, there was, there was some other guys in the group too and from, from his band. And they played old folk songs with rock and roll arrangements. And they, one of them was their version of Oh Susanna, which I thought was really cool. And I actually did a version of it on one of my albums, Psychedelic Hill with uh, Crazy Horse, you know, decades later. So there was a rock version of Hey Joe prior to Hendrix? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, Hendrix came late. Had no idea. I don't know. Hey, Joe is a very cool folk rock thing. And Tim Rose is great. Try to find a Tim Rose version. I will. So you were in the Squires playing music inspired by that kind of stuff. Was your group with Rick James prior to that? No, it was after that. So Squires was first, then Minor Birds? Yeah. And what was that group like? Anybody from the Squires and the Minor Birds or no? No, just me. What was that group like? Well, Bruce Palmer was in that group. Rick James was in that group. Amazing. John Yakimak and another guy, a guitar player and a drummer, Rick. Rick, the drummer, Bruce, the bass player, John, the rhythm guitar player. The lead guitar player was gone. That's why they brought me in. And Rick Matthews, Ricky James Matthews III, was singing lead. And he was in Canada, and we didn't know, but he was a draft dodger. I see. And what was the music? How would you describe the music? R&B, rock and roll. Rolling Stones meets Motown uh, meets uh, old-time Southern blues. Great. Did you, did you do gigs? Oh, yeah. How were the gigs? Gigs were great. It was all over the place. I remember pulling my guitar cord out multiple times, just playing, jumping around, and <laughs> suddenly there's no sound. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We played high schools. We played uh, we played clubs in Yorkville and Toronto. So then you f- you come down south. You find Stills. The band starts, and uh, things go good for Buffalo Springfield. It was great. It was a great band. Never was recorded. I wanted to ask you about that. What do you remember about the recording sessions for Buffalo Springfield? Our managers were our producers. That's the one thing I remember. They were awful. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. They were on the phone half the time. They were posing. They had nothing. We, If we'd have had, like, oh, God, if we'd have had Barry Friedman, if we'd have had Paul Rothschild, any number of guys from the folk and blues scene, we would have been in pretty good shape. We had two managers from New York. Uh, they didn't know how to do it. They had Sonny and Cher. Yeah. But they didn't do that, though Sonny did that. Yeah. So we, we didn't have the benefit of, we didn't even have Sonny. <laughs> you needed Sonny. That would have been something to hear. So uh, anyway, we didn't have much. So the recording sessions was mostly up to Stills and, and I and Furay and, you know, the whole band. But that, that was it. On for what it's worth, the guitar sound in the beginning, the harmonics, who plays that? Me. I never knew that. 
it's yeah. it's funny because the song is so it's obviously synonymous with Buffalo Springfield, but we think of it as a still song. Yet that guitar part is kind of the musical signature of the song. And um, it's just interesting to know that you played it. Yeah, yeah, it was live. Do you remember how that came? Ab- how that part came about? Because it's unusual. I never heard that in a song before, or maybe since. It seemed to me like the song was a news warning or something. And uh, I was thinking of the sound of news. So the ding could be part of a news sound, you know. Yeah. And uh, it, it just, it just going ding, ding, just doing that thing with the tremolo and the tremolo bar and the, the Gretsch. And uh, it seemed to work. The engineer, Tom May, at Columbia Studio B on uh, Sunset Boulevard. But uh, yeah, that, that was great. That was, that was a good session. It's the only one we did with Tom then. Were you in the band when they opened for the Rolling Stones? Uh, yeah, I, I, I played with the band when they opened for the Stones at the Hollywood Bowl. How was that? Well, it was just like another gig. It was pretty good. Uh, you know, it was a big crowd and everything was pretty exciting. I remember I drove my, I had a Mini Cooper at the time. Great. I remember driving it to the gig and, and uh, you know, trying to get in the backstage with it. And I just said, well, you know, if you don't want to let me in, you don't have to. Just tell somebody that the guitar player from Buffalo Springfield can't get in. <laughs> you know, so I sat there for a while, you know, and I got in eventually. I wasn't in a hurry. I said, it's okay with me. I mean, somebody's going to notice I'm not there. They're going to be looking for me. Yeah, no cell phones in those days. You couldn't call anybody. Oh, no. Everything was really different. It was all reality. People had to talk to each other face to face. What was Laurel Canyon like back then? What was the vibe like? What was the feeling? What was the community like? Pretty hippie. Pretty hippified community. A lot of beautiful green stuff. Green plants. Old houses. The neighborhoods were full of people from bands. Down the hill from me was uh, Danny, Danny Hutton from Three Dog Night. He was just like 100 yards below me on the hill. I lived up on a, in a cabin up on a hill uh, rented by an astrologer named Keo. <laughs> I had a little pine, pine cabin where I wrote a lot of those songs, um, you know, all those Buffalo Springfield songs up there on pieces of newspaper. I wish I still had them. I, at one point, I had all the newspapers in a big pack. Uh, with with felt tip markers on top of newsprint. Wow. That's what I wrote those. You know, Mr. Soul, Broken Arrow, all those kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Probably expecting to fly and all that. They're, they're somewhere over there in a dumpster in the sky. <laughs> but uh, down the hill from me, uh, I was up the steps near Keo's house in my little pine cabin uh, that was separate by about, you know, 100 yards or so along the hill. But at the bottom of the steps, which were quite numerous steps, there was a garage. And John Densmore lived in the apartment above the garage. And, uh, you know, everybody was just playing at the Whiskey A Go-Go. The, the Three Dog Night was, was uh, you know, kind of a manufactured group that was put together by a record company. And they were pretty cool. And I, I remember them coming along and playing the whiskey and kind of breaking themselves in. And, and further down the road was... Uh, Denny from the Mamas and Papas and Michelle, Michelle Phillips and uh, Denny Doherty. Yeah, they were everywhere. Rockers were everywhere down there. 
did it feel good coming from Canada, moving down, and then being in this neighborhood of of like minded people? Was that different? I thought that's what it was what it was like. I just thought that's what happened. You know, I was in Hollywood with people everywhere. I I, I wasn't surprised because all the musicians lived there because they all play there. That's where they all come from. That's where all the record companies were and the studios and everything. So it, it didn't uh, strike me that much. Now, in retrospective, it does kind of get me. Yeah, at the time, it seemed normal. And then, and then, when did you move to Topanga? Sixty-eight, probably. I think sixty-eight. The, the Springfield broke up, and I moved to. Uh, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I think I moved to the Chateau Marmont. Well, I lived in a room there for a while in an apartment. Well, I'm not really sure of that. I was there a couple of times. I know I did tonight's the night living in there. And uh, somehow I was, uh, at some point I moved up north. I, I saw a ranch. I saw the, the land out of the airplane window uh, when I was going up there to play with uh, the Springfield in uh, Sausalito in this place called the Charles Van Dam, the Ark where we played and uh, there was Moby Grape was playing with us. So us and Moby Grape playing on this old paddle wheel. Incredible. Yeah. With this guy, Matthew Cates, who is a promoter of, you know, like Fillmore Avalon or something. He managed uh, the ARC and uh, he employed us to play there. I don't think we got much money. We did play there and gave us a place to play on. But you found the ranch. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I found out. the ranch that way. Amazing. Did, so, so you didn't leave, live long in Topanga. And did you live in Malibu for a little, a minute as well? Uh, I lived in Topanga first. Then from Topanga, I moved to the Chateau Marmont again. When I got to the Chateau Marmont, I moved from there. I took off and went up to, I might have been staying with Gary Burden my art director for so many years uh, in his house. And uh, then I then I, thought I went up north and I found this ranch. So things must have been okay. I, I'd already recorded after the gold rush in, in uh, Topanga. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody knows while I was living in Topanga. And uh, my first album with David Briggs, they were all with David Briggs uh, when, I, when I came to uh, that was my first album. And then so after the third album, I moved up north uh, with Bruce Berry and Guillermo Giacchetti and some of the road crew John, and uh, John Barbada, who'd been playing drums with CSNY. He's a drummer in the Turtles. So we went up north and I bought the place and moved in. We stayed there for a while and started writing, started touring again. And I wrote the songs and started writing Harvest. I remember there was a there was a BBC live performance from right around that time because Harvest was not out yet, but you played songs from Harvest on it. Yeah, I remember that too. It's one of the it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Tell tell me everything you remember about that. It was interesting. They uh, they did the show, and then they wanted me to do something else uh, after that. But the show itself was. Kind of like, uh, you know, you see these shows that are in the round where you see all the people sitting and they're all lit and everything's clean. The artist is sitting up there on a little round stage. It kind of reminded me of one of those. It was a lot like that. 
I had all my songs and I was playing them and it was, uh, I don't know what hall, I don't think it was a hall, I think it was a BBC studio or something. And, um, you know, I just played my show. It was the same show basically that I played at Massey Hall. Same show I played basically the same one I played at Carnegie Hall. Strangely enough, I have a bootleg of that. I have a bootleg series now because I recorded everything. Great. So I have all the masters of every bootleg that was ever put out. So now I can put those all out and have them sound great. You know, if anybody remembers them, they're going to be there. And they're pretty cool. Uh, it makes me feel good to have them. So, yeah, I just pretty well now just do whatever I want to do. I, I put out way too many records. If I was going to put out records and try to sell them, I couldn't do it the way I'm doing it. I'm putting them out now because I want to, I just want to make things right. I, don't, I want to get all of the stuff that I wanted to put out. I want to put it out. Yeah. I want to be here. Yes. I want to enjoy whatever reaction there is. And I want to enjoy the creation of it. And I want to make sure it's done right. And that the artwork is correct and everything. So I can still do that. But the big problem with me is that I have so much unreleased stuff. Even that that session we did, I think we did three songs in one day, and we were out of it. Yeah, and it seemed like it went pretty fast. Yes. And then I was in on into something else and couldn't play because of my finger or whatever it was. Couldn't do the big live performances because my finger was. I think I hacked it up with a, a knife, making a tuna sandwich or something. I think I was in my train bar, place I like to go to, kind of gather my senses and. And lay track and move move mountains, do all kinds of stuff like yeah, that. I never it's funny to hear you say that because I never made the connection before of when you're in train land, you can move mountains and you can you yes. really have complete control of the universe in yeah, train land. And then you can turn the whole universe off and leave if you want. Yeah. So that's good. But it gave me a place to go. I created the mountains out of stumps from the forest so i took natural things that existed from burnt out trees and stuff and cut the a bottom on them that was flat and put them on these tables and created these mountain ranges out of them and it was only a matter of perspective the way they were positioned on the table made you think that it was a mountain range it couldn't be anything else you know with a track winding through it going through tunnels and stuff but mostly it was the scenery. And I used moss from the trees, moss from the ground, and I'd bring it into the train barn and lay it out all around the mountains, and it looked like fields, looked like green fields. And I used to water it and do all kinds of stuff. It was very cool. Wow. And very good. And I'm building another one in um, Malibu right now. And my son and I and all of the grandchildren. Great. When I took my son there, because I left the ranch uh, about eight years ago. I left Broken Arrow Ranch behind. Uh, but I loved that train land. So I, I didn't want people to have my train land. So I dismantled it. I took it all apart. And all I left was the stuff that was screwed down. But I took all the pieces of wood and took them all to Southern, Southern California and built another table outside. Amazing. The story does have a payoff. When I took my son Ben there, we went there together uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I showed it to him. And when he saw it, he recognized the wood. And, you know, he doesn't speak. Yeah, He's in a wheelchair, and he's a quadriplegic. So he doesn't speak, but he looked at this stuff 
and then looked at me with one eye, just gave me the greasy eyeball, the smile on his face. And you could tell since he was like a year old, he'd been going there and playing trains and hanging out with me while I was working on the layout and seeing these pieces of wood. So all the pieces of wood that he saw were there. Amazing. And it was amazing. It just, and so we're rebuilding and uh, getting ready to do it again and have all the grandchildren come in. I'm so happy you get to, you get to have a new train barn and it'll be, oh, yeah. and I bet it's yeah. going to be an improvement over the old train barn. I'm guessing oh, yeah, knowing it you. Will be. <laughs> it'll be great. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more from Neil Young. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart, but how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest.
We're back with the rest of part one of Rick Rubin's conversation with Neil Young. Back to Buffalo Springfield for a minute. There's a story that the day before Buffalo Springfield broke up, you fired the manager of the band, which was Elliot, our friend Elliot, and broke Elliot's heart because he loved the band. And you, you coldly fired Elliot. And then, the, and well, this is the story. You'll you'll tell me the truth. This is the, I'm telling you the the uh, the mythical story, the legend. In the legend, you fire Elliot, you break his heart. The next day, you quit the band. The band breaks up, and then you call Elliot and you hire him to be your personal manager. Yeah. Is any of that? Is it anything like that? It's all true. It didn't happen so fast, but it took a couple of weeks. Yeah, he did something I didn't like. <laughs> I can't even remember what it was, but I told him no. Nah, can't be doing this. Not with us. So what changed that made you rehire him after firing him? I loved him. <laughs> I loved him, but, you know, he fucked up so bad. I, I, I couldn't have him. You know. So I, I think it's just my own immaturity. I had to have them all for myself <laughs> or not at all. It worked out. It worked out great. The love affair went on up until he passed on and still continues because we can still send our love to Elliot, share what we're feeling. And if we listen close, we'll probably hear what he's got to say. That's right. We will. Tell me about Briggs. First meeting Briggs. How'd you meet him? I met Briggs in Topanga Canyon. I was walking along old Topanga Canyon Boulevard on my way to a restaurant to have breakfast. And uh, it was about a mile and a half walk. And I like walking. And Briggs and uh, a guy, Pete, went by in what it would have been a Hummer, but it was earlier, before Hummers. So it was a military vehicle, troop carrier kind of thing. Cool vehicle. Yeah, cool vehicle. And he saw me and they stopped and picked me up. So I met him. Were you hitchhiking or you were just walking? Just walking. And he just said, hey, do you want to ride? Hey, you want to ride? And I said, sure, thanks. Do you remember good conversation in the car? Was he involved in music at the time? Oh, yeah. He was producing, uh, he worked with Murray Roman, the comedian, and he worked with Tetragrammaton Records. He was working on a record with Randy California from Spirit. He had a few things going on and everything, and I just liked talking to him. Yeah. I got to know him and found out where he lived and go over and hang out at his house, just hang out and talk. And I played him some songs and we just started talking about it. What was the first uh, album you did with him? My first album. From the beginning. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And that was that's that's the record we made after I met him. Then I moved from the house I was living in to another house, one in Topanga where I recorded after the gold rush. But this is long before that. And I was living in Topanga at my new house and going in and recording with Briggs at TT and G recorders and uh, a little bit of Wally Hyders and stuff, working with uh, Jim Messina and George Grantham, who uh, Jim had been had helped us out in Springfield as we were breaking up. And uh, George Grantham was in uh, Poco, which Jim Messina and Richie Fure started. So I just, you know, I played with Jim and because uh, I knew them, him and George. When did you build the big red box with all the, the, the pedal box? <laughs> okay, that's uh, 1976, the first iteration of it. Yeah. This was the simplest version of it. The first version only had two levels. First of all, let me explain what it did. It connected a uh, electric potentiometer with a spring, uh, a spring drive through a cable to an electric box that you could 
turn on or turn off. It had a spring on it. So if you turned it off, it went back to its starting position wherever you manually screwed it into the post on the button on the amp, the volume control. I took the volume control off my deluxe, stuck this thing over the volume post, screwed it in. Once I'd gotten the volume where I wanted it, then I put the thing over and screwed it in. And then if I hit the switch, it would go turning this thing until the spring was, it was pushed all the way and that would turn it all the way up. And then if I push the button again, it would turn off and then it would go back down. So the advantage of that with a Fender Deluxe or with any old amplifier is that really the master volume is the tone control. You have these ancillary tone controls for bass and treble, but they don't really do what the volume control does, which is overload the hell out. So that was the amount of overload that I had was decided by the position of that one button. So there was this silver box that was, you know, with mechan- it looked like a Meccano set holding it on top of my amp. And then I had a Fender Reverb unit and those two things. That's what I used up until 19, and including 1976. And uh, the last record that I made playing that way was as a record that is, is called Electric Judy Presents Chaos and the horse it rode in on. Never heard that one. Oh, it's not out. Oh, it's just, that's why. It's, it's just, I just found it and it's the last one that I did with the original rig. Then Rust Never Sleeps was the next tour and I developed a system that had four levels for the potentiometer to go to, four buttons to select the tones that I wanted by the position of the, of the master volume. So it's only controlling the master volume. That's the only thing that the box does. That's what that does. But the, bo- the red box also has, on the bottom, there's four buttons. That's, that's low, medium, medium high, and high. And they all sound different, really radically different. Along the top, there's a uh, MXR analog delay unit, a Mutron octave divider, some old kind of flange thing, and a on-off bypass that took them all out of the loop. Wow. An echoplex. So they were all together, the Mutron octave divider and the other things, and the echoplex, which are the most critical ones. And every once in a while, I used the flanger. Um and there was another one that was a ridiculous digital thing that it sounded like I was making popcorn or something. <laughs> so I'd throw that in for a couple of notes every once in a while. But they were right on the edge of the, my foot, all these things. And I had them all there. And then one, one button would take them all out. So then instead of going through all these switches, the signal only went through one. I bypassed all of the electronics and everything in the other stuff. But if I want to use the other stuff, I... You know, I could preset it and then hit that one switch and everything would come on at once. Or I could play with the switch on and add the things one by one. I could do anything I wanted. Plus, I had the four levels of volume. So it's pretty complex. Yeah. Do you ever hit the wrong button by mistake? Always. Every show. (laughs) Sometimes. Oh, yeah. The thing is, Rick, that while it was a great sound, uh, it colored everything that I did. From 1977 and a half to now. Yes. But right before that is this album Chaos. Can't wait to hear it. 
which is just me playing the guitar with Crazy Horse with one volume change and a reverb unit. No echoplexes, no flangers, none of the stuff, but also nothing where the signal went away. Nothing where the signal had to go through a new place to get to the effects. Yes. So consequently, the actual sound of the guitar was more pure. More direct. And I was playing it, and what that sounded like is this record that I think is this chaos record is ridiculous. It's the best Crazy Horse record ever made. When do we get to hear that one? Probably this year. It's coming out. It's the first disc on volume three of my archives. Amazing. Yeah. Can't wait to hear it. Oh, thanks. I, I wait to hear it too. We just uh, Today we just had a meeting and locked the running order completely of 13 CDs. There's 13 discs. Each one has a cover. Each one has a story. And... Uh, but they're all they're, those thirteen discs are found on ten Blu-ray discs, and the Blu-rays each have the high-res version of the CDs and films. There's eight films, so of the ten Blu-rays, eight of them have films and CD and you know albums in high-res. How did you know to archive all this? Like, how did you know to save everything? How did that happen? That's the question. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'll call you if I can figure that out. I, I have no idea. But I collect everything. I keep track of everything. I can't help it. I write everything down or I make some sort of note or cryptic message to myself that says where this is from. So consequently, I have at the beginning of this disc, I have chaos, which is chaos and the horse it rode in on, presented by Electric Judy. That's a very interesting cover title. But anyway, then at the other end, CD 13 is Summer Songs, which is a collection of original versions of songs that came out three or four years later. So it has the original versions of American Dream. Would you call them demos or would you not call them demos? I would call them sketches. I see. I don't think they're a demo. What they are is... Versions of the song, the pure original version, they all have the original lyrics, which are different from the lyrics that, on the, that came out on Freedom. And uh, I had four albums that they came out on, all in the late 80s, early 90s. And this album was made in 87. So the album Summer Songs was done. Years before. Yeah, I did all these songs and then I... I don't know why, but I put them all together, called them summer songs, and put them on the shelf. And then later on, uh, when I did American Dream with CSNY, I tried a couple of the songs. I mean, there's two of the songs from that are on that record. Then I did Freedom, and there's songs on Freedom that are from that record. And there's two other records that I made uh, that I can't that that are uh, from that period, and. Uh, they are American Dream from that album, The Last of His Kind, which is an unreleased song about farmers, Someday, which was on Freedom, For the Love of Man, which was on Psychedelic Pill, which came out in the 90s, One of These Days, which was on Harvest Moon, Wrecking Ball from Freedom, Hanging on a Limb from Freedom, 
and Name of Love from American Dream. So all of those songs in their original shape are on this. And I, I played them all on acoustic and then very different from any acoustic overdub I've ever done. I, I did them all, performed them, sang and played them. And then right away, I did them again, listening to what I'd done, playing exactly without moving, staying in the same position, not moving, did the song again and played everything along with it. It's uncanny. You cannot, you think that it's an electronic thing where I've duplicated the guitar. You really, if you have, really have to listen to tell that it's two different versions. Really, they're close and everything's the same because nothing changed. Everything is doubled. Everything's doubled. I sang the harmony parts and played the guitar parts at the same time. So when I did the harmony parts, the guitar was added or a lead guitar was added, but whatever it was, I played it and sang at the same time, just like I did on the original. So that was the MO that I used to create summer songs. And uh, I, I found it last week, maybe two weeks ago. <laughs> I kept looking and I kept saying summer songs, there's summer songs, yeah. That's a bunch of things that I didn't want to put out or that I didn't use. Then I listened to it. It's got beautiful echo, it's so beautiful. For it's not like a demo because it's like the production. The first thing that anybody heard when he said is, Wow, what a great production! It sounds amazing. And I'm going, Well, it's uh, first of all, it's not even high res, it's CD quality because it was in the dark ages of digital of recorded sound, which was the late 90s, late, late 80s, and early 90s, yeah. where things went downhill really badly before we started to pull it back because we were all recording low resolution, because the technology companies were telling us how great it was. That's why we started doing it. We trusted it again. It's a big mistake. But anyway, so we did, so and we found these, they all sound the same. They are like a record, like no other record I've ever made. They all are, everything is unified. It's all together. It's like I wrote myself a letter and mailed it to myself to get like 30, 40 years later. Unbelievable. Yeah, so there they are. So that's what I'm doing right now as I'm investigating all this stuff. Thanks to Neil for taking the time to talk about the early days of his career and telling us about his vast musical archives. Be sure to check out part two of Rick and Neil's conversation next week. You can hear all of our favorite Neil Young songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. We can find all of our new episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. You can follow us on Twitter, at Broken Record. And please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. 
NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.